Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, and it's not just any edition of the Three Martini Lunch. It's the Alfresco edition, at least for Jim. Jim is having some home repair work done, and home repair work is not necessarily conducive to recording quality audio podcasts. So Jim has dutifully uh, entered the great outdoors, and so if you hear some birds chirping today, it's not uh, cheap sound effects on the Three Martini Lunch. Those are real <laughs> birds in Jim's yard. Jim, how are you? I was assured that the home repair work would not be very noisy, and I suppose compared to above-ground nuclear testing, it is not. Uh, but otherwise, it is very difficult to, uh, for that. So bear with us, dear listeners. We'll get through this as best we can. We will. And we're brought to you today by Gabby. Right now, it's totally free to check your rate on car insurance and home insurance. And there's no obligation. Take two minutes and see how much you can save. That's Gabby.com slash martini, G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. All right. Double fisted good martini here, which you can uh, find in Jim's writings at the corner. Both of these are from the Wall Street Journal. One on the health front, one on the economic front. First on the health front, Moderna Incorporated on Monday said human subjects in a phase one trial of a candidate COVID-19 vaccine produced immune responses that were a positive sign of the vaccine's potential to prevent infection with the new coronavirus. Two weeks after receiving a second dose, people who received the smallest tested dose of the vaccine created levels of binding antibodies equivalent to those seen in people who have recovered from COVID-19 and people who received a medium dose of the vaccine produced binding antibodies two weeks after a second dose that significantly exceeded the level seen in recovered patients. Uh, Jim, I'm not an immunologist, but that sounds really encouraging. Elsewhere in the journal, on the economic front, official data may not show much if any recovery in May from April, but a rise in June is quite plausible. And if that growth is sustained, this economic contraction could go on record as the deepest since the 1930s, yet also the shortest, lasting as little as two or three months. So obviously, major caveats here, Jim. Nothing's guaranteed on either one of these fronts yet, but uh, encouraging news in two key areas. That's not a bad way to start a Monday. Exactly, Greg. And the first one would probably lead to an increased likelihood of the second one. Um, the more progress you see on a vaccine, the more confident people are going to feel that, okay, our lives are not going to be permanently disrupted by this. You know, better days are coming and they'll feel a little better about spending money. Um, in addition to the uh, development that was there, also there's another one, it was a research on antibodies done by a company out in San Diego, came out with it on Friday and it sounded almost too good to be true. So I had to go start looking, this is Sorrento uh, uh, Therapeutics. Um, they had said that they have developed an antibody that basically is killing the coronavirus every time it encounters it. Now this is only in cell research. Uh, I had mentioned the earlier development uh, uh, to someone today, and they said, oh, yeah, monkeys. No, no, we're up to eight different trials going on in human beings right now. These are not big tr tr uh, trials. There are only about 45 people in the one that has everybody so excited. But you are seeing the kind of results that you want to see um, in the development of a vaccine. This, all of this is happening extraordinarily fast for uh, by, by standards of vaccine development. Um, so far, no indication of side effects. Now, I just wrote something in the corner pointing out, Greg, you probably came across somebody saying something like, uh, you know, we've never developed a vaccine uh, against a coronavirus. That's not quite accurate. We have developed them. Uh, There's research that went into this after the original SARS. The good news is that the SARS outbreak of 2003, 2004 died down pretty quickly. And unsurprisingly, people, institutions and individuals are really interested in researching 
for ailments that are, are serious and ongoing and less so when the disease hasn't killed anybody in 10 years. So people stopped researching the SARS. Before, that, before the research stopped, they had found at least two treatments that worked against killing SARS. <clears throat> the downside is it could hurt your liver and hurt your lungs, which is, you know, bad. <laughs> but the idea is that if you, you know, when you put a lot of resources into developing a vaccine, you're more likely to get one. Um, there were also developments that seemed to look like they're able to treat MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another kind of coronavirus. Um, in monkeys, and ironically, just now this year, are they starting human trials for that treatment? Again, MERS has not killed many people. It still kills a couple of people here and there around the around the world. Um, but you know, if you're wondering why have they developed a, a vaccine for this problem, well, it generally is proportional to how serious the problem is. Well, if the coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 is this giant pressing one, you're getting enormous amounts of research, enormous amounts of resources all around the world, and lo and behold, you're starting to see some optimistic things about that. Um, and as for that assessment in the journal that like, hey, you know, we could see economic growth by June. I saw some people scoffing at that, but to keep this in mind, it's not saying that things will be all fine and dandy and better by, and fixed by June. What it means is we will have hit bottom and you'll start to see growth again, which, you know, te you know technically traditional definition of a recession is two straight quarters of uh, declining growth. We will probably hit that. Um, but if by June you're starting to see uh, jobs get created, you're starting to get businesses reopening, you're starting to get production start to go up, yeah, look, you know, we're going to have a deep uh, recession. Some would argue depression, either way you want to, any way you want to slice it. But I would much rather have a short one than a long one. And the idea of the rebound starting by summer would be a really good sign for, uh, for the country and for the world. Absolutely right. Uh, folks reopening, uh, demand going back up, all that stuff would be good. And uh, Jim, we all want to save money, and especially now uh, with uh, tighter economic times. But uh, when was the last time you looked at how much you're spending every month on car insurance or homeowners insurance? I'm sure you're thinking about that today. So now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. All you have to do is link your current insurance account and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. So that's what I did. I tested out Gabby. And uh, it's very simple. You uh, enter in information from your name, your location, your age and address, and, and eventually link to your insurance policy. And you get a bunch of quotes uh, right away. You can see exactly how much you could save. The good news for me is that uh, I've got a good policy and I don't need to change. But for those who might be paying way too much, Gabby can tell you exactly how much you're paying more than you need to and who can give you a better deal. So Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. And if they can't find you savings, they'll at least let you know that you can relax knowing that you already have the best rate out there. Now, as I mentioned, you've got a link to your account and you've got to put some other personal information in there, which on the internet can make you a little squeamish. It certainly does me. But the good news about Gabby is they'll never sell your info. So no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate and there's no obligation. So take two minutes two minutes. You can do it right now to see how much you can save on your car and homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I.com slash martini. Gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now. And now that we get deeper and deeper into this and the debate intensifies over 
reopening or not reopening, the political tension gets even higher. And now what to do from a congressional perspective uh, is getting more and more tense. We've talked about uh, a lot of the liberal wish list items in Pelosi's $3 trillion relief bill. And part of that is to bail out the states. Mitch McConnell doesn't want to do that. The issue came up on State of the Union, California Governor Gavin Newsom talking with Jake Tapper. And here's what Gavin Newsom had to say about what happens if Congress doesn't bail out the states. Uh, Can you explain what you think will happen to California if the federal government doesn't give you money to help you out? Well, uh, the same folks that say it's dead on arrival, I hope they'll consider this. The next time they want to salute and celebrate our heroes, our first responders, our police officers and firefighters, uh, consider uh, the fact that they are the first ones to be laid off by cities and counties. Uh, the folks that are out there, the true heroes of this pandemic, are healthcare workers and nurses. Uh, those county health systems have been ravaged. Their budgets have been devastated and depleted. The budget counts depleted since this pandemic. They're the first ones uh, to be laid off. So we've got to square our rhetoric with the reality. Jim? I know there's going to have to be tough choices made because of all the uh, budget deficits in these states, but the idea that first responders are the very first thing to go seems like a lot of politics from a guy we've given credit to for not playing politics. You know, Greg, I'm sure there are some Californians out there who are saying, whoa, 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 Jim, don't get up on your high horse about governors. You have Ralph Northam. (laughs) But even by that standard, let's observe, like, you know, even even by Ralph Northam's foolishness and embarrassing scandals and all that kind of stuff. I don't think even he would say, look, if the federal government doesn't give me a bailout and I find myself with less money than I wanted to have to run the state government, the very first place I'm cutting are the cops, the firemen and the ambulances. <laughs> you know, like if you can't find anything else in your state budget uh, that should be cut before the people who do life saving work, um, you should probably be recalled. And oh, by the way, this has happened in California. We remember the name Gray Davis. Whereas the next governor pronounced him Cray Davis, who, uh, you know, was recalled in, uh, I believe it was 2003. Gray Davis had won. I believe he is within this, there were a variety of factors, but one of the high, first of all, he never was all that popular to begin with, even by the standards of a California Democrat. Um, and he had said, oh, no, our state's books are fine. We're, we're doing hunky dory. We're not going to have to raise taxes. Gets reelected. And oh, my goodness, we have such a terrible funding shortfall. Who could possibly have foreseen this? I have no choice but to raise taxes. I have no choice but to, to make all these budgetary changes that uh, a lot of Californians didn't like. And this is what began the short but intensely covered and indisputably uh, exciting career in politics of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, now, obviously, we'd hope for better results than, than Schwarzenegger's run was. But um, look, California, as we said, Gavin Newsom had been generally getting uh, bipartisan praise for, for how he'd handled this. He had generally avoided these kinds of fights. We are constantly being reminded that California's economy, if it were to break off, would be what, the sixth or seventh largest in the world, that it would be larger than most other large countries. This is not a, a state government that should be, you know, uh, utterly devoid of, if you have the most dynamic economy in the entire country and, you know, of anywhere on earth, you really should not be going to Washington with your hat in your hand and saying, please give us money. Because, oh, by the way, there are 49 other states that need this. And, oh, by the way, um, everybody needs money right now. Uh, this is, you know, this is, there's going to have to be belt tightening all across the board. And the idea that, oh, you know, well, we're going to have no other choice but to cut the cops and firemen and EMS and doctors and all that kind of stuff is uh, uh, pretty transparent politics. But, you know, 
Back in the weed agency and a bunch of other places, I talked about the Washington Monument strategy. The Department of the Interior used to have this foolproof way of getting rid of any attempt at budget cuts because the moment somebody said, we want to enact a 5% cut in the Department of the Interior's budget or something, inevitably the response would be, well, we're going to have no choice but to shut down the Washington Monument. We're just not going to be able to afford uh, operating it and having people, tourists go to the top and all that kind of stuff. And of course, Congress would always back down when the face of that challenge. And that's, you know, this is the strategy that government uh, managers have been doing since the beginning of time. This is not a time to knuckle under this kind of uh, indisputably disingenuous effort at, uh, at budgetary priorities when everybody can see this is a fairly transparent attempt to say, oh, there's no other place we could possibly cut. We'd the first place we'd have to go is the most popular and most important government duty of all. Obviously reminds us of the uh, barricades that got put up at open air memorials mm. uh, during the shutdown uh, back during the Obama years. That was a, that was a ridiculous moment. Jim, it uh, just reminds me that, uh, you know, there are stories that uh, happened, obviously, before we started this podcast. The California recall, we would have had so much fun with the California recall. Just the bizarre rules that allowed pretty much anyone with a pulse to run for governor that year in the event that Gray Davis lost, which of course he did. And you had, you know, child stars and uh, just random people who had nothing to do with politics. It was a weird time in America. It was post 9-11, but it might still have been a little bit of the hangover of the uh, vacation from history in some ways in this country. I was going to say, uh, wasn't Gary Coleman one of those? Gary uh, Coleman was there. I think he got a few thousand votes too. Yeah, which, yeah. All right, let's go on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, we are obviously hoping to get past uh, coronavirus as quickly as possible. Uh, vaccine, treatment, uh, distancing, whatever uh, the different tactics are. We want to get back to something close to normal. But the Washington Post opinion page is here to tell us that the biggest problem in doing so is our stinking affection for our freedoms. That's not exactly their terminology, but it's pretty close. Here's what Keith Humphrey says. Even a technologically sound program is useless without widespread consent. And obtaining such consent, quote, would require a major reduction in our liberties and a prolonged period of increased surveillance, as journalist Stephen Bush points out. Will Americans accept those reductions willingly and quickly enough to implement an effective testing regimen? It's hard to imagine. In countries with successful testing programs, the relationship of citizens to the government differs from that of the United States in important respects. According to a 2018 Gallup poll, Germans are almost twice as likely as Americans, 59% versus 31%, to have confidence in government. This may help explain Germans' greater willingness to comply with testing regimens and mask-wearing guidelines, and why Germany has almost two-thirds fewer coronavirus deaths per capita than the United States. And uh, you can toss in South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and other places uh, that are being compared to the U.S. response here. And Jim, I know we've talked about the comparison with exactly how South Korea and uh, Taiwan have gone about uh, making sure that this doesn't spread. But uh, what do you make of the uh, lamenting of people's affection for their freedoms here? You know, Greg, every now and then you see somebody make an argument that is a lot, sounds a lot better in their head and probably seems a lot more persuasive to them than it actually does once it's said out loud. Correct me if I'm wrong, that argument basically amounts to, hey, isn't it great that Germans are much more likely to follow orders? Eh, kind of, maybe, depends on how, what the orders are. Um, look, I, there are a whole bunch of, of aspects of what the, you know, not just Germany, but we could point to Taiwan and South Korea, Japan, these other Asian countries have done. I think the one that jumps out at me the most is in South Korea, either whether, you know, whether you come into the country or whether you uh, have a reason to be exposed to it, you have to download this app this app tracks your location. Apparently in some of them, they ask you to go to the four corners of your property. 
in order to measure what to get a to get a reading of where it's an acceptable place for you to go to. Um, and then this thing is constantly tracking you, and it is constantly letting the government know where you are. And if you go out of that, <laughs> the perimeter of where you're allowed to be, you will instantly get those kind of warnings and they will be start tracking you. You'll get contacted. You have a kind of a health minder who apparently will call you at, apparently one person said 30 some times in a three day period. Think about 10 times a day checking in on you. And on the one hand, it might be caring. It might be nice to know somebody's watching over you, but also like there is this kind of Orwellian big brothers thing. And you're, you're you know, they use that to enforce their quarantines. Now, we 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 had our, our all the Edward Snowden revelations and all the ideas of the government was collecting all kinds of uh, data about Americans that we never really consented to give them. Um, are we comfortable living in a surveillance state? Are we comfortable with the government knowing where we are at all times? Are we comfortable with the government having our personal health information? You know whether they know whether you have comorbidities, as they say. Um, you know, I guess maybe, maybe the issue is either, I think I strongly suspect that this is just a matter of cultural, uh, longstanding philosophies and attitudes towards the government in those countries that simply aren't present here in the United States. And you cannot expect a large and diverse country of 330 million people or so to react the same way as Germans or South Koreans or Japanese, because we're just fundamentally different countries and different cultures. But what's more, I don't know, based on what we've seen from the United States government, you can point to the Trump administration, you can point to the Obama administration, you can point to um, all kinds of, uh, you know, going, going back decades. Do you trust the government with lots of money, your personal information? You, do you really, you're certain that wouldn't get abused? Nothing in the IRS abuses made you uh, not necessarily feel good about that? Nothing, uh, you know, I, I, I'm increasingly fond of pointing out that we have a, you know, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, whose job was to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. And then they sent a whole bunch of guns to the Mexican cartels. We have an environmental protection agency whose job is right there in the title, protect the environment. And then they dumped ga gallons and gallons of wastewater into rivers and turned them yellow in three states. Generally, if you tell the government to do something, periodically they will do the exact opposite of what they tell you to do. So the idea that, you know, oh, Americans are so unreasonable for not wanting to turn over all their, you know, personal uh, health information and location to the government at all times. It's because we could foresee ways this could be abused. It was the National Security Administration had to reprimand like, you know, 30 or 40 people who were using their access to all kinds of personal information to check up on their exes and stuff. Right? Stalkers are bad. Stalkers who work for the government intelligence community, that's even worse. So these don't strike me as um, uh, unreasonable fears and unreasonable concerns. The moment we had the TSA scanners that could see under your clothes, you knew that somebody in the TSA was going to start using this to look at hot women. We have, if you give people power, there is always going to be that temptation to abuse that power. That is at the heart of the American experiment. That's the heart of what makes us who we are. And so we shouldn't be the least bit surprised that we say, oh, you know, these ideas of monitoring people's health in order to, you know, uh, to slow down the, the pandemic. Sure, sure. Maybe they will have real you know, advantages to, to government officials as they try to mitigate this. But there's also enormous potential for abuse. And I don't think it's crazy to, to think about that potential for abuse. And also just the idea of it's not the government's job to know where we are at all times and to be checking up on us. But what do I know, Greg? Well, you know how to do a podcast from your yard and that's fantastic. <laughs> that just uh, yeah. tells us I, even more about your talent. While we were having this conversation, I got a complaint from the neighbors, not from my speaking, but from the, 
uh, the work being done in the bathroom. Uh, he, they said if we could keep it down, and I should point out my my neighbor's deaf, so <laughs> that's a sign of just how loud it's been. So Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, don't forget about our friends over at Gabby. If you want to take just two minutes and find out if you're getting the best uh, rates for the coverage you're getting on uh, auto insurance or homeowners insurance, gabby.com slash martini, G-A-B-I.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Give us a kind review. We always love those. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.